I'm going to assume that most of you have probably heard President Kennedy's famous inauguration speech in which he had one line that has remained in the, uh, in, the, in the public awareness where he says, ask not what you can do for your country or what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. You've heard that, right? Okay. Um, I'm from Iowa. I love the movie Field of Dreams. Another kind of famous line, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. Did you not see the movie? Maybe. Okay. Winston Churchill, when uh, England was facing a, its dire moment in uh, the possible invasion of Germany, uh, gave a speech at the House of Commons, another one of these lines that lingers on, in which he famously stood before them and said, we shall never surrender. So you get the idea. I could go on. There's lots of things like this. The point is that the great speeches, the great literature, the great movies typically will have at least one line that lingers on. There's some thing that, if I was to quote it, start the quote, most of you could finish it, and you would associate with that uh, you know, entertainment or whatever it is. And oftentimes, that one thing, like in the Churchill speech, is a summary of everything that it, the rest of the speech was. And we come now to Romans, and Romans 1 Verse 16 is the Churchill moment of the book of Romans. It is a summary, personal summary from Paul of really everything that he wants to say in Romans in one memorable line and in one memorable verse. Now he's going to say it deeply and eloquently for 16 chapters in Romans, but he says it in essence here. And I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. We're only looking at 16 today. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. And by the way, if you're a like, guest with us today, we just started this series in the book of Romans. We hope you keep coming, okay? We're still in chapter one. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now our focus today is verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now note first of all that Paul begins here with a personal statement. He says, I, okay, so... He's speaking for himself. I am not ashamed. Not ashamed. This is what we oftentimes call a double negative. Okay? A double negative. And if you are mathematically oriented, I guess a, a negative one times a negative one is a, is a positive one. A negative and a negative is a positive. And sometimes we roll these out in our speech uh, because we want to somehow, by doing the double negative, emphasize something. So, for example, we will say something like, 
You know, I am not unsure about this. Now, you could have said, I'm sure about this. But you say, I am not unsure about this. So the people that are listening are like, okay, not, un, negative, negative. Oh, I'm sure about this is what this person is trying to say. Okay, a not, not. Now, what Paul is doing here is like that, but it's actually deeper than that. And I learned a new word this week, uh, and I'm going to share it with you. It is, it is a grammatical description. It's a grammatical word called litotes. Okay? Litotes. What is a litotes? A litotes is an ironic understatement in which an affirmative is expressed by the negative of its contrary. Did you get that? Okay. You're like, man, I got up to go to church today to hear this kind of thing. Okay. Now, you may not, that's sort of a rough way to say it, but you know what it is. And I'm going to show you how you know what it is. You might say something like this. You should check out such and such a restaurant. You won't be sorry. Now, you could have said, You'll be glad that you went to such and such a restaurant, but rather you chose to say, you won't be sorry, which is another way of saying, you'll be glad that you went. Or how about this one? Not bad. You ever do that? Something sort of really good happens, and you're like, not bad. Not bad at all. What is that? That's a double negative. You could have said, it's good. But you said, not bad. Why? Because somehow by negating the opposite of it, it somehow says it even more strongly than if you just simply said, it's good. So hopefully after this message today, you might say, not bad, Pastor Steve, not bad at all. Now, why this detail? Okay, here's why. Because Paul begins this summary thesis statement of Romans by doing this litotes thing, this double negative thing, and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, he could have said, I'm confident in the gospel, and we would have read that and said, isn't it great that the apostle Paul is confident in the gospel? But instead, he chooses to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He negatizes shame in the gospel to emphasize that he is absolutely confident in the gospel. He is essentially saying, I have zero, zip, nada, shame about the gospel, none. Which is to say, I am absolutely bold, courageous, and confident in the gospel. So speaking of shame regarding Christianity, I wonder today if any of us could honestly make that statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I think if we were to be honest that, you know, as brave as we are in church, right? And right now we're all beasts for the gospel, right? We're like missionary. Everybody here is an amazing missionary in church for the gospel, We step out of here and we step into this culture and this world around us and we recognize that here we're all protagonists for the gospel, but out there they are generally antagonists for the gospel and all of a sudden inside it's so easy to feel a wee little shame and to start to kind of 
get timid about identifying with Christ, about the claims of Christianity, or to water it down somehow. And I want you to see that the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of is not a watered-down gospel. In fact, this Romans is an entire explanation of the gospel, and in two verses, he actually begins to explain the gospel that he's not ashamed about. And he begins with these words, for the wrath of God. How's that go over in our culture? Hey, friend, let's talk about the wrath of God. Most people don't, you know, we talk maybe about the love of God, the benevolent God, something like that. Paul doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's not like, hey, God loves you and has got a wonderful end for your life. No, he's like, the wrath of God. That gospel that begins with judgment upon sin is the gospel that he is not ashamed of. The raw, explicit gospel and what it says about sin and God and wrath and judgment and Jesus and cross and blood and death and supernatural resurrection from the dead and life eternal for only those who believe is the gospel he's not ashamed of. Now we say that doesn't really go over so well in our culture. Well, think about the Roman culture he's writing to. I mean, at least here in America, loosely, probably erroneously, we are described as a Christian nation. Nobody would call the Roman Empire, at least at this point in the story, a Christian empire. (laughs) I mean, this is not a place that the gospel would be well received. In fact, to consider that legally it was the judgment of a Roman governor to kill Jesus. And now Paul is going to Rome to convince Romans, that the one that Rome called a criminal is actually God in the flesh and savior of the world. Better to go to Ethiopia and try to convince them than Rome when Rome killed Jesus. And further to recognize that Rome, the, Rome's entire spiritual and political complex was at odds with the very basic tenets of Christianity. So for example, what was, what was Rome spiritually? Rome was polytheist. They had all kinds of gods. They didn't worship one true God. They had lots of sons of gods in their pantheon as well. Rome was also very, very sensitive to any claim to kingship beyond the authority of Rome. You might remember when, when Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, Pilate asked him a question, are you a king? He doesn't say, are you a carpenter? I heard you're a carpenter. Why? Because Rome doesn't care about carpenters. They could have tens of thousands of carpenters, no threat whatsoever. But a claim to be a king went all the way to the top. You might recall that when King Herod, who himself was a Roman appointee, leader, king, When he heard from the wise men that there was somebody born king of the Jews and the wise men double-cross him and don't come back to him and they go a different route back to uh, where they were from, what does the Roman King Herod do? He sends his soldiers and they go and they kill every child two years and under in the entire region of Bethlehem. Why? Rome was not open to another king. There was one king in Rome and he was Caesar. 
So to realize that Paul is writing to a people and a culture that is politically hostile and religiously hostile and personally hostile to Christianity is critically important. And on top of that, Christianity is a basic message of personal moral accountability to God. How would that go over in a society like Rome, which was famous for its sort of immoral lifestyle, especially sexual? Like if you read, read the accounts of the sexual activity, and you gotta do this carefully, of Rome and like Pompeii, another famous Roman city, it would make Las Vegas blush. What was common practice in that, in that day? So what... What do you say if you're Paul to sort of build rapport in a culture that is absolutely set against the very basic tenets of what you believe? Where do you go? How do you have any boldness? To give you an idea of what the the cultural uh, setting was, this is a a picture of a, uh, archaeologist found this, in Rome on the Palatine Hill. If you're familiar with Rome at all, there's the, this, this area where all the Caesar's palaces were. Uh, it's very close to the Colosseum. If you go there, you tour this area. This, is, this was found very near to, uh, to that area. And n- notice what you see here. If you look, you see there is a cross and there's a man figure on the cross with the head of a donkey, Right? And then you have this guy here who is like in some kind of a posture of worship for this. And what it says under here is that Alexamenos worships his God. This was mockery of some guy named Alexamenos. Some guy that knew Alexamenos mocks him. And what better way of mocking Christianity than to put a donkey head on the body of Christ hanging on the cross? Alexamenos worships his God. This is who Paul is writing to. This is a city that is, you know, it's an imperial city. It's the most powerful city in the whole world. It's the seat of power for the entire world. And it is fundamentally set against and hostile to the gospel. And it's to them, of all places, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's the hostility level in your family to your Christianity if you are a Christian here today? Or what's the hostility level in your workplace to your Christianity if they realize that you are one, or your school, or your gym, wherever it is that you are like doing life and living life, do you feel their receptivity to Christian faith or hostility? I'm gonna guess more hostility than receptivity. Okay? And whatever you are feeling there, no matter how bad it is, and I know some situations here that are very bad, No matter how bad it is, it is not as bad as Rome. And yet Paul says to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I 
I think every one of us at times, myself included, feel a certain level of timidity and maybe shame regarding some of the aspects of Christianity, regarding my own maybe testimony or failures thereof, inconsistency. And we can look at Paul and see this kind of like, you know, he's just so bold for the gospel and say like, dude, where does this come from? Like how, how do you, you're a sinner too, Paul, how do you come a, get to a point where you can write that to them? Notice the verse. I am not ashamed of the gospel for. Okay, so here now is the why or the how. For it is the power of God unto salvation. The potency of the gospel is the power of God. And Paul's writing here, and he recognizes the gospel that he is going to Rome to share with them. It's not a human gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not Peter's gospel. It's not James or John or any human being. The gospel that Paul is not ashamed of is God's gospel. He says that earlier in chapter 1. The gospel of God. If it was a human gospel, what would really be the point? Because what is true about any human being? We are weak, we are frail, we have no ability, resources to do really any of the things that we are putting all our hope and trust in with the gospel. There is no forgiveness of sins in my gospel, your gospel, my life, your life, my ideas and thoughts, your ideas and thoughts. There's no forgiveness of sins and there certainly is an eternal life. Mankind has all his own gospels and people that try to promise deliverance and salvation. Read this book and follow this person and, and, and do this, seek this, be a part of this. This is a big deal. This will bring meaning to your life. But in the end, they don't provide any of that. Why? Because in the end, we're all dead. We're all dead. And all of man's ideas and philosophies and all the books of the Library of Congress and all of that cumulatively dies with us. There is no salvation in it. There's no power in it. What do we need? We need something that is going to save us from eternal death and ultimately the wrath of God and judgment forever. That's what we need. We need power to save us and this is a power we don't have. And so Paul here says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The Greek word there for power, if you've ever studied this, people make a big deal about this, that the Greek word for power there, it's the Greek word dunamis. We get our English word from it, dynamite. Okay, Dynamite. Now, that's helpful in one respect because we recognize there's power in dynamite. The problem is, is that dynamite blows things up. The power of God puts us back together. It puts us back together. It is a restoring power. I am restored in my relationship with God. I'm reconciled with my creator. I am restored inwardly as the, the power of sin is broken within me. I no longer live in that death life. Now I live in newness of life. I'm restored to other people as the love of God is applied to relationships in my life. 
It is the power to save, to reconcile, to heal, and to forgive. And its central truth is regarding God's activity through Christ to save us, which we had nothing to do with. There was no power that we have, not even, if I can say this appropriately, not even Joseph's seed to create Jesus in the womb of Mary in the first place. Why the virgin birth? Because salvation is not from us, it is from God. Okay, The power of God, all of it, all of it comes from God. It is not generated in the human heart, it is generated in the heart and the mind of God. It's saving application does not come from us. We are not, we don't remain saved because we hold on to God so well. We don't have the power to do that. We remain saved and God's, the saving benefits of Jesus are applied to us forever, which we call eternal life. Who here can apply the benefits of Jesus to their personal account before God forever? You can't, I can't, but God can. That's the power of God, the promise of God. This eternal application, this fulfillment is a work of God. We live forever by the power of God. From start to finish, salvation is of God. It is God's gospel, it is not our gospel. And again, we should be glad for that because if it was from us somehow, it would be marked by all the weakness and all the frailty and all the corruption that no matter what we do and what we touch, it always happens. Human beings, we're all about fads and the latest greatest and this and that, and in the end, we're all dead anyway. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's gospel and God's power to save. And Paul's point is, why, why would I be ashamed of the gospel if it's the power of God on display in this world saving us? Why would I be ashamed of that? As I was preparing this message this week, Putin from Russia went public claiming to now have the most powerful nuclear weapon in the world. I don't know if you saw that news. Possibly you did. So there's Putin. What Putin didn't say is, I'm ashamed to have to admit something. I now have the most powerful weapon in the world. He didn't say that. He went public with like this. The Russians, we have done it again. <laughs> Why? Because power emboldens. Power emboldens us. And the greatest power in the world is the supernatural work of a holy God to make righteous humans who are fundamentally unrighteous and to forgive them for their sins and to make them spiritually righteous and alive forever. That power is something the world does not have and we don't have, but God has it. And Paul wasn't ashamed of it. And the only reason that we are is that we don't realize what we have. 
So why should we not be ashamed of the gospel? Because it's God's gospel. It's God's power. And notice here now the purpose of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Unto salvation. Now how God accomplishes this is 16 chapters of Romans. But don't miss why God is saving. The why here is expressed in this word, to save. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. But I'm sort of curious, what exactly are we being saved from? Like if you went to somebody on the streets, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but we, we have these Christian words, right? We use them, we use them, and we kind of, in our little subculture, we know what they mean. But if you went to the average person and said, hey, are you saved? They'd be like, saved from what exactly are you asking? I'm a little confused by the question. Like, you know, saved, are you saved? Come on, man, are you saved? I, what? I don't know what I'm supposed to be saved from. Paul is about to explain in two verses what we are saved from. Here's what he says in verse 18. We're gonna get to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the right answer to what we are saved from is that we are saved from God. And here now is some of the mystery of the gospel is that God, who is holy, expresses that holiness in justice against all unrighteousness, which is every human being, but in salvation he is expressing his love and mercy and sending a rescue through Christ in order to save us from himself. Are you saved from God, is the right question. Are you saved from his wrath? And God sends his power through the gospel to save us from himself. And the mystery of that is what Romans is going to unpack and unfurl and blossom before us like the most beautiful flower that you have ever seen, which means that you're gonna have to keep coming and coming and coming. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, saving sinners from his own wrath at our sin by Jesus becoming sin for us and then taking the penalty via the cross. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. The next two words are for all. Now we could say, perhaps, we wish the verse ended there. Because if it ended with the for all, then we're all out of jail. Which would be awesome. Every human being that has ever lived for all, all are saved. This is known as universalism. That somehow Jesus died for all of humanity and that in the end, no matter who you are, what you believed, how you lived, you end up in heaven anyway, so we're all good. But that's not what Paul says. 
for all who believe. Salvation is not universal. It is particular. There is a condition here, and it is this word, believe, for all who believe. To believe in something is to trust in something. And I'm going to try to maybe emphasize more the trust aspect of belief because we live in the Disneyification of society. And the word believe is something that in our culture has become sort of this like fairy tale unicorn thing. And that if you, if you believe in it, then it becomes true. And we sing songs and beautiful, you know, beautiful singers sing these amazing songs about believing and things becoming true if you believe in it enough. That is not the way that the Bible talks about faith. It is not that something becomes true if I believe in it or if I trust in it. It is rather that something is true and I'd better believe and trust in it. And if I don't, the benefits of that truth are not applied to me. So salvation is only for those who trust in Christ. A settled confidence in the promise of the gospel that all those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross dying for us, that God, his wrath, will be avoided and his love and power will be experienced forever in eternal life. And our belief in that does not make it true. It is true, friend, whether you believe in it or not. The question is whether in the end, when you are dead and you step into eternity, whether you are under the grace of God or the wrath of God. That's the question. And the gospel and my faith, faith, trust in Jesus is the condition that God has established for those that are saved from his wrath. Now, we're going to get into how that trust and faith itself also is a gift so that in the end, nobody can boast about it. Okay, but that's coming. But the universal offer, this is the encouragement. This offer goes to all. Do you see that word? For all who believe. It doesn't matter who you are here today, what you have done, your ethnicity, your background, your story, it doesn't matter. In the eyes of God, we're all the same, we're all sinners. And the offer is made to anybody who will trust and believe. And I wonder if that's you today. As you sit here today, are you, would you say, yes, my trust is in Jesus. And not Jesus sort of as this inspiring religious figure. But in Jesus of the gospel. The Jesus who gave his life as a ransom payment for the debt that your sin and my sin owed before a holy God is my hope and trust in him and in him alone. I love this verse, Romans 10, verse nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's the bottom line, right? 
And you could sit here all day and say, yeah, but what about this? And I got this question about this denominational thing, and then my grandpa who said he was this, and my blah, 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 in the end, you're dead. Okay? All the little questions that you want to throw up as somehow giving you cover from needing to believe in Jesus. They don't matter in the end, because in the end, you're dead. And what matters in that moment is if in this life you have confessed with your mouth, not just saying the words, but a profession from your heart, Jesus is Lord. And by that you are embracing Christ and believe in your heart that God truly did raise him from the dead, embracing that basic narrative of death, burial, and resurrection, the essence of the gospel. Notice it just says, you will be saved. There it is. The simple, unadulterated gospel. And I just, friend, wonder if today that is true for you. And if not, why not? What are you waiting for? Now the verse concludes with to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and we're going to unpack this in Romans as well because Paul writes to this Roman church that is predominantly Gentile, but now the Jews, after they're allowed back into Rome, they've come, the Jewish Christians have come back in, and now you have this church of Jews and Gentiles, and they're at odds with each other, and he's basically going to say, you know, hey, you Gentile Christians, you need to realize that the Jews have certain privileges or certain honor in the story of redemption. God gave them revelation, and they're the root of the tree. You're being grafted in, and so you should honor them and respect them. But you Jewish Christians as well realize that God's plan from the beginning through Abraham was to save the Gentiles as well. So get along. For us today, we can rejoice that this grace from God, this gospel and promise is not ethnically defined. The condition is not ethnicity, but belief. Not skin color, but faith. Not family tree, but faith tree. Anyone, no matter who they are, will be saved if they meet the condition of trust in Christ and profess him as their Lord and Savior. And that's where Romans 1.16, it's just that summary statement In these next 16 chapters, he's going to take this apart like a Ferrari. There's probably not anybody here with their driver's license, probably, at least in an automatic version, could get into a Ferrari and make it go down the road. But if you were to take apart a Ferrari, you would see amazing engineering that has gone into making that car what it is. And this is why when it comes to the gospel, a six-year-old version of me could simply put my faith and trust in Jesus and be saved from the wrath of God, which is my story. I couldn't have told you uh, hardly anything about the rest of how Romans unpacks the engineering of the gospel. All I did is I put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And you here today, the children in our children's ministry, can simply put your faith and trust in Christ and be saved. You don't have to be able to quote Romans, explain Romans, or even know Romans, but you have to know Christ by faith. And I would urge you to do so.
So I got two questions then that Romans 1.16 brings up by way of application today. Here's the first. If the gospel is so powerful, why don't they get it? Have you ever wondered that? Like you read these amazing claims in the Bible about the power of God and all of that, and yet in practice, what happens? You have two sons that are raised in the same family. One goes to be a missionary, and the other one goes to like Las Vegas and lives a life of, well, away from God. And you think, how did this work? Because same home, same like family devotions, same church experience, same, 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 yet one is this and one is that. How does this work? Two people can hear the same gospel sermon. One leaves laughing at it, and the other one, it transforms their life forever. Maybe that's going on right now in this room today. For some here, this is a quiet mockery. In your heart, you're drawing a donkey on the head of Jesus. And for others here, you're Alexa Menos. How? Why, is, why does the gospel work this way? And Romans is going to go much deeper on this. But in terms of the power of the gospel, it only does its work in those that believe. So here's, here's 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That summarizes so many of the things that you see in the media. You know, you get two people in the media, one's a Christian, one's not, they're being interviewed. The one is trying to speak the truth in an appropriate way, and the other one is just mocking them to the max, probably along with the media personality, right? This is society that we live in today. For some, it's the most wonderful thing in all the world, and for others, it's silly. And the reason for this, friends, is that we must believe in order for that power to do its transforming work. Without the gospel, there is no power. Without the gospel, there is no transformation. Without transformation, it means that you've never received the power of God in the first place. One commentator says it this way, the gospel is not advice to people suggesting they lift themselves. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but it is power. And God's power at that. When the gospel is preached, this is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is upon him. Or is that work? When the gospel enters anyone's life, it is though the very fire of God has come upon him. There is warmth and light in his life. Now one guy I read illustrated it this way. I thought it was good. So I have here a jalapeno pepper. And if I stand up here and I say, this jalapeno is hot, you can hear that and you can say, hmm, that's an interesting truth claim. I think I'm going to ponder it a little bit. Some of the more interested would say, you know what, let me hold that thing a second. And you would get the jalapeno and you'd be like, don't feel hot. I know we say it's hot, but it doesn't feel hot. It feels more like sort of room temperature. It feels so normal and common. How do you discover the power of a jalapeno pepper? 
There's only one way. You have to bite into the jalapeno pepper. Because when you bite into the jalapeno pepper, all of a sudden there is a power, there is a heat that does its effect in your, this transformational effect in your mouth. Now you are experiencing the power of a jalapeno. And the gospel is like that, friends. You can look at it, you can hear all kinds of testimonies from people that have said, this has been transformational in my life. And yet you look at it and you think, it looks so normal, it seems so common. There's, there's, I, don't, I don't see any evidence of this being. And yet what is the testimony of millions of people down through church history and the testimony of so many people sitting right here in the room? That when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, he changes your life. There is a power to the gospel that is only experienced by believing and by trusting. I had an interesting story told to me right before first service today. A woman came up to me right before the service and she said, I just gotta tell you what an amazing thing's going on in my family. And she referred to a funeral service that I preached some weeks ago uh, for a family member, and it was just kind of a normal funeral message from Philippians 1, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But in her family is a, was a, long, is a guy that was a long-term politician in Illinois who attended the funeral. Somehow, it has shaken him up. And he's never heard anything like it, gone to church his whole life probably more liberal type churches, never heard the actual gospel. And he's now looking for a new church. It gets better, wait. So <laughs> his two kids are both avowed atheists, adults, both avowed atheists. Somehow that funeral message gripped them and rattled them. And they just have been all shook up about it. And they were in the car together, and they were talking about it, and they're like, what should we do? And one of them suggested, let's find one of those Christian radio stations. Let's just turn it on. <laughs> so they found one, and they turned it on. And guess who was on the radio? <laughs> when God is after you, he is after you. God is the one that does the saving. Okay? Don't hear that story with, with me in it. Just hear God in it. The power of God to save. But you gotta eat it. You gotta eat it. Second question is, if the gospel is so wonderful, why are we sometimes ashamed? If the gospel is so fantastic, and I, I, wish, I wish I could stand up here and say that I never feel timid, you know, I'm, I'm on the airplane, I'm out in the public in some way, and somebody, you know, you have that sort of moment where like, I think maybe I could share the gospel right now, right? I feel that myself. Why? 
And I think so much of it is because in that moment, what seems powerful is not the gospel, but that person's approval. Or culturally acceptable, you know, political correctness. Or maybe it's my own fear that feels powerful in that moment, and I bow to my own fear. And yet, there is no power in man's approval. There is no power in political correctness. There is no power in my own fear. None of those things have power, and they certainly don't save. I got thinking about things that we are unashamed about and think almost nothing about it. We're just so clearly unashamed. I thought I'd hear some examples. If you see the sticker on somebody's car, it means they ran a marathon. Look at me, I ran a marathon. My child is an honor student. And you know what that means. <laughs> now what is true about each of these and a hundred other things we could put up there? None of these save anybody. None of these have any eternal, lasting, significance at all, and yet, we are unashamed of those things. And then you have this one thing, the only thing, that is the power of God on display in the saving of sinners from their sins. It is the amazing love of God to which we have tethered our entire eternal hope. And that thing is the thing that we feel shame about. We can be sure that when we feel timid about the gospel or timid about being identified as a Christian in our workplace or in our school, I would encourage you to remember the jalapeno. The gospel and the gospel of God alone is the power to save. It's the only thing in the entire universe that saves. It's what Rome needed. You can say, what did Rome need? They needed a new Caesar because you know, Nero was a nut job and they needed better roads and they needed better political policies and how about better schools and let's rally for these things. What Rome really needed was Jesus. Rome needed the gospel. And what does our Rome need? The same person, the same truth and message. And they may mock us and that brings me back to this graffiti. They may mock us. They may look at you and, and put a donkey's head on your Savior and on you for believing such a thing. But let me ask a question today. Who would you rather be? The guy that did the graffiti or Alexa Menos today? In fact, just to speculate a little bit about this, we don't know anything more than this, but just to speculate that how did the guy that drew the graffiti know that Alexa Menos was even a Christian in the first place? Could it be that maybe somehow Alexa Menos you know, shared his faith with this guy who then turns around and draws such a perverse drawing? How did the drawing come to be? I think we can say somehow Alexa Menos was not ashamed of the gospel. Somehow, his life, his testimony, his words, his example communicated to somebody that he was a follower 
of Jesus. Which would you rather be? Alexa Menos or the artist? Unless something changed, I know where the artist is today. And I know where Alexa Menos is today. Experiencing eternal life. So the questions of this verse are, really, what about you? What about you? Are you presently trusting in Jesus for your salvation or not? And if so, are you ashamed of it? May we never be ashamed of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.